right, all right. Welcome to Faith Church. Glad you're here. My name's Matthew, one of the pastors here. And if we haven't had a chance to meet, or maybe you're kind of new or first time back in a long time, I'll be out in the lobby afterwards, and I'd love to get a chance to say hi. And those of you that are watching online, we always love having you uh, with us. Uh, Join me in Matthew chapter 16, the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 16. If you want to follow digitally, you can do that. Scan the QR code there on the screen. It'll take you to a spot where you can do it. And uh, if you've got a printed copy, I'm going to be sharing several things or pointing out several things as we read along today. Phrases that I would encourage you to highlight so you can go back to, think about, help you stand out with maybe what God is trying to say and do and say to us today. Matthew 16, are you ready for the word? Awesome, because whether ready or not, here it comes. Matthew 16, starting at verse 1, this is what it says. One day, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. Underline that sentence. They came to test Jesus, demanding that he prove through a miraculous. Can I just make a general observation? I would highly recommend not double dog daring the God of the universe anything. (laughs) Just saying. Verse 2, this is how Jesus replied. You know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Underline that phrase, signs of the times. Only, oh man, Jesus gets a little salty here. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. And the only sign I will give them is a sign of the prophet Jonah. Then Jesus left them and he went away. If you're new to studying scripture and you're like, who's this Jonah character? I'll come back to him in a little bit and unpack and let you know why that's significant. Later, verse 5, they crossed to the other side of the lake and the disciples discovered that they had forgotten to bring any bread. Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, and so he said, you have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? Don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with the loaves and the baskets of leftovers you picked up? Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up? Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? So again, I say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They missed it. Jesus had dropped like this brilliant Jesus juke dad joke on them. And they like, whoop, missed the point. Come on, I can relate to Jesus in this as a dad. You say, your kids say something. They're like, I really want some bread. Bread? Did you know Jesus is the bread of life? Come on, it's just like this Jesus juke dad joke. They're like, yeah, no, but that's bread. Bread, Jesus, what are we talking about here? Jesus wasn't actually talking about bread, but they were thinking about bread, and they were wondering bread, and they wanted bread, and Jesus like, no, 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 I'm juking you out. We're not talking about bread anymore. You heard me say bread, but I didn't mean bread. I meant 
pay attention to the Pharisees and Sadducees. There's something going on in their heart that's not good. He just kind of like, whoop, juked, faked them out and left them standing in one place. And Jesus had moved over to another place. It's like a basketball reference, friends. Jesus juke. Are you not with me yet? Still missing it, aren't you? It'll be all right. You'll catch it on the way home, and it'll be funny then. Then they said, they last, they understood that wasn't he talking about yeast and bread, but he was talking about the deceptive teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Underline that sentence. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or maybe just one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Underline that. Who do you say? that I am. Simon Peter answered, well, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are so blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Underline verse 17. Now I say to you, you are now Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden and forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, Help us not to get juked out by what you're saying and miss the point. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart not of unbelief, but full of belief to walk out what we hear you saying today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. I, uh... I have to make a, a real, I don't have to make it, but I'm going to make a confession this morning. I absolutely love the local church. I absolutely love church folk. I is one. Like I grew up in the church, spent my whole life in the church. Uh, the only drug problem I've ever had was I was drugged to church like four times a week. That was like the only drug problem I had, just always getting drugged to a prayer meeting, drugged to midweek, drugged to uh, Royal Rangers, drugged to youth group. I was getting drugged all the time to church. But I have grown up in the church, and I have come to discover a deep, deep love for church people. We're a, di- we're a different breed. We're a different kind of people. Those of us that like grew up in the church, we grow up in some weird things, like like weird songs that we, we used to sing, like if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on a attack. Ow! Like, why in the world are we teaching children about sitting on tacks? I'd never understood completely, but we sang it all the time. There are just different things. There are different things that make us fun and humorous and things that on the inside, when you understand the heart and you understand church people, there are some things that you can just kind of laugh at and acknowledge and be like, okay, that's, that's, that's funny to the rest of the world, but it's just kind of who we 
I remember the first time I brought in a friend to church and he had never been to church a day in his life and we were standing in worship and my hands were kind of up like this and looking before the Lord and all of a sudden uh, he started putting like coins in my hands and I was like, what are you doing? He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm worshiping. He goes, it looks like you're asking for money. I'm like, well, I'm not. Just missing missing the point church people we we there are things that we do that people are like I don't get that and that's okay I think it's good to laugh and to be able to laugh at ourselves and have some humor and recognize that uh, there are uniquenesses and quirks about us as church people and that's that's okay but at the end of the day can I just say I absolutely love the local church I believe with all of my heart that the local church is the hope of the world. Some of my greatest joys have been among the people of God. Some of my deepest wounds have also been from among the people of God. Some of my greatest moments of just like peak triumph have come from being among the people of God and some of my lowest moments in my life have come because I'm among the people of God. I absolutely love Jesus' church. In fact, I I have three personal mindsets that matter (laughs) a great deal to me as it relates to how I view the local church. One of my mindsets is that I want to commit with loyal covenant commitment like a husband, The second is that uh, I want to lead with the heart of a father, and I want to clearly communicate the truths of Jesus in a context and in a way that makes sense for people. These things I've given my life to, and the first is that I have loyally given my my love like a father or like a husband to the church. There, There is no element of divorce in me from the local church, no matter how difficult it gets. I'm all in. Whether there are 400 people, 4,000 people, or 40 people in this space, I'm going to show up being all in with all of my heart, with all of my energy, with all of my life to proclaim the good news of Jesus and to worship among the people of God. I'm all in. There's no other option for me. I have, I'm living my life in this way with this loyal commitment to following Jesus. And friends, can I let you in on a secret? The local church, the, the global church is called the bride of Christ. Jesus is all in on the local church. In fact, if you're not aware of it, Jesus is still building his church. He's still building his church. He's still about the church. It's still plan A for him. There is no plan B. The way in which he wants to bring the kingdom of heaven into the kingdom of this world is through a partnership with the people of God called the church. He's not going anywhere. He hasn't given up on it. He hasn't abandoned it. He's not up in heaven drawing up new blueprints for a sub plan B. No, this is plan A. He's committed to the church. He loves the church he died for the church it is his bride and without a doubt there's a lot of good about the local church 
Oh, man, the things that God has used the church to do and the things that the people of God have been able to accomplish in the name of Jesus. There's a lot of beautiful things that are happening, and there's a lot of bad that we could sit and talk about and point out and process, and there's a lot of people who are going through some very deep pains and wounds. And, and I completely relate and understand those things, and I want to be really, really compassionate for those who've experienced deep wounds from people who carry the name church member, who are church folk who would call themselves Christians. I have deep, deep compassion in that way. But at the same time, I'm not sure coming at the church from outside the church with scorn, with scoffing, and with an unhealthy sarcasm is the way in which to bring about health again in the church. You can say a lot of things to me and about me. It's true. I got a lot of patience for those things. I got, I got pretty, pretty tough skin at the end of the day with those things. But you start talking negatively or saying mean things about my wife, my bride, my baby boo, my hot mama thing, my, my sweet honey bunches of crunch. And you are about to see how unsanctified I still am. There will be some holy hands of wrath being poured upon thou with faceth. And I will repenteth later, maybe. Like it's just, it's just likely gonna happen. I think we enter very dangerous territory when we openly criticize, condemn, throw away the local church. I believe that in the past few years, God has absolutely been refining the church. God has not done pruning out and pruning away in our lives. Things do not glorify him as the church. But make no mistake, the church is still his plan. He hasn't given up on it. It's not going anywhere. We're going to be here for a little while until he returns. And then we're going to be here for a whole lot longer. It's still his church. And Jesus is building his church. A.J. Swoboda in his book, After Doubt, and if you've ever experienced pain, deep questions, and doubt as it relates to the faith and the people of God and church, I can't recommend this book more. Highly, highly recommend this book. In this book, there's a chapter called Leaving Church, and he says this. He says, there's literally no expression of covenant faith in the Bible in Israel's life or in the church period that disconnects faith from formation from the community of God's people. Loving God but hating his people has no historical precedence. Part of loving God is loving the church and being present with her. Does this mean that we shut up leaving our critiques at the door? No. The prophet is the immune system of the church. We need words of truth 
But playing the prophetic role is best done from within the church in love, not from outside the church as a finger pointing. When we do this, stay in. We embody great power from God's spirit to heal our mother, the church. Friends, brokenness cannot be healed by more bitterness. Scars are not healed by your sarcasm. The best remedy for misuse is not disuse, it's proper use. The best thing to restore life to a people who have felt like life has been sucked out of them is to be a life-giving people. The best remedy to the understanding that the church is hypocritical is to stop being hypocritical. The goal is not to withhold forgiveness anymore, but to be people of forgiveness. The goal of being the church and being the church that Jesus died for is not criticism and critique. It's by becoming the broken people of God who represent the truth of God and bear it out in the life in which we live. It's proper use, not disuse. It's about holding to a standard and living as holy priests before the Lord. It's recognizing that Jesus is building his church. And when we start to experience the cuts of our, of our father, when we start to experience the cuts in life and the testing in life, and we start feeling the pruning shears, clipping away things in our life and attitudes that God wants us to adjust, we need to remember that when life starts to cut, we have to cling to the father, son, and spirit more. That's the best way to experience pruning. Friends, he said, abide in the vine. And pruning comes in John 15 Jesus said so that those who don't bear fruit are getting cut away and those who are bearing fruit are getting cut so they bear more fruit so friends you are pruned if you do and pruned if you don't (laughs) why because Jesus is still building his church you and I are going to experience that pruning because we don't fully represent the bride that Jesus wants to come back for just yet either. When I'm talking about church, I want to be very, very clear. I'm not talking about a social event. I'm not talking about a Sunday time slot. And I'm certainly not just necessarily talking about a building. I don't believe that church is just a social event. I'm talking about engaging with a people as a people. The church is engaging with a people as the people of God. That's church. That's it. That we become and embody the life of Christ in the world around us. And and there are things that God needs to understand and get right. And this were some things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees weren't getting right. They were coming to Jesus to question him, to test him, to challenge his authority, to double dog dare him to prove who he really was. See, the church leaders had gotten off course. There were some things that had started souring in them. They were becoming more formal religious rather than life-giving relationship. They started pointing out people's issues rather than pointing to the God who can clean and heal and restore all issues. They were becoming church Karens. Some of you are like, what's a church Karen? One of my favorite um, comedians uh, right now on social media is a guy by the name of Taylor Ransom. And one of his caricatures is as somebody who he himself has grown up in the church and loves God still, 
has taken this caricature of a Karen, a church Karen, and kind of does this character online, and it is incredibly humorous, and I enjoy laughing because I, uh, much to my own chagrin, have encountered many of such people in my life, and I know all too well all of what he's talking about. Karen is kind of like the social word that we use for people who are overbearing, who insert themselves into your business without you inviting them into your business. Church, we got church Karens like that too. We got church Karens who insert themselves into your business as if it was their business, but it's none of their business, but they're going to let you know what they think about your business. Come on, you ever seen a church Karen? Don't, don't point right now. That would not be helpful for anybody. You just write lock eyes right here. Church Karens were all consumed with looking right instead of acting right. They, they were a little extra mothering. They just decided everybody needed mothering and whatever amount of mothering you had probably wasn't right. So they wanted to make sure you had better motherling. And so they always were pinching the back of your head, telling you to sit up straight in church, don't go to sleep, elbow. And you come on, church Karens were out there. They were, the church Karens were the ones who always had another conspiracy to tell you about how you were wrong about this. And there's more to understand. And there's more stories. And they had a pyramid scheme ready for you to join a, some MLM that they were at, well, ready to sell you. Come on, there were some church Karens parents who were all about form and no longer about function. This was the Sadducees. This was the Pharisees. This was the people who were coming to Jesus demanding a sign, but they wouldn't have been able to see it anyways. Jesus walked right into their midst and they missed him. Even if they wanted to say, they were coming demanding, Jesus, show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. But he had already done so many signs, and they still didn't see it. See, these Pharisees and Sadducees couldn't see, you see. That's my last dad joke of the day. I've just done them off of them. But they couldn't see. Why? Because they were spiritually blind to the truth that was right in front of them. They had been so clouded by their religious formation that they could not see the fulfillment of scripture right in front of them. See, the, the, the Pharisees started putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable as it related to the spiritual truth. They, they started taking their eyes off God as the source and substituted for the rules that they could force and see people's progress. They were blinded by their own national pride as the new chosen ones, yet they missed the chosen ones sent by God. They prioritized form over function and missed the fulfillment of all things in front of them. The ma they majored on methods instead of the message. They would rather argue about God than align with who God is. And that always leads to a hard heart. They were experts in virtue signaling. But they were novices at living virtuously. Oh, they'll tell you how wrong such and such is. And why that attitude isn't right. And they will point out the virtue that others needed. But they were not living virtuously themselves. They were blind to the truth. Their eyes of their understanding were darkened and they couldn't see the sign for anything in front of them because their heart was hard. Ephesians chapter one, the apostle Paul 
kind of articulates the reality of this. And he talks about how we need to pray that people's eyes would be open. Listen to what it says. For Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 16, it says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you to, which are his riches, his glorious inheritance in all the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. The Apostle Paul is saying a prayer. And he says, every time I pray, I pray that the eyes of your understanding would be opened. That they would receive light. Where you were blind, you could begin to see. Friends, there is a spiritual blindness that occurs in many people's hearts who cannot see who Jesus is and who he's meant to be in their lives. They miss the point They're missing it. They're demanding a sign. Oh, Jesus, if you would just do this, then I'd believe. Well, if you would just do this, then I would understand it. I'd give my life. No, you wouldn't. Because you are still blind to see the truth anyways. Friends, if you have people in your life who are obstinate, who are against, who are antagonistic, or who have just walked away from following Jesus, maybe the Spirit wants you to begin praying this very prayer over them. You have a prodigal in your family who hasn't come back to Jesus, start praying this prayer. You have children who are growing up in our world, in our system, and you're worried about their formation in the world, start praying this prayer over your children every day. Why? Because unless we are spiritually engaging, we will live and grow spiritually blind to the things of God, and we will miss it. And unless Jesus sends the Spirit to remove our eyes and convince us of our need for a Savior we'll keep missing him even though he's in front of us. Even if he's doing wonderful, miraculous things. Friends, listen, I get it. I have been in a place where I have been skeptical, where I have doubts, where I have questions, where I have uncertainty. It happens. We all get there. I've prayed the prayers. God, if this is really you, would you do blank? I've prayed those prayers. God, if, if you really want me to marry Amber, would you send a flock of pigeons to poop the message in the parking lot. Marry her. Right now, Lord, let me know. I gotta know, I gotta know. Like, come on, God, show yourself real to me. If you love me, you would heal me. If you loved us, you would do this. If this would happen, then this job would show up. Well, what if what we're wanting to see isn't what Jesus needs us to see? And what if our desire to see is actually impossible to see because we've been blinded with some things. We've been skeptical of some some things. We've begun to be uh, more convinced of arguing our points rather than aligning with the life of Jesus. And friends, if you are one prone to argument, you are arguing, you are likely headed for a life with a hard heart. Often we will argue and fight. 
because a spirit of fear has gripped our life and we're trying to control something. Other times we're argumentative because our hearts are hard. Pastor, how do you know? Because culturally, the male version of Karen is named Matthew. And yes, I've seen the memes. People have sent them to me. I don't need to see them again. But seriously? That's my life. That's part of my story. Oh, how I could win an argument. I still can if I need to. But I choose often not to because I have no desire to grow into a hard heart because of my arguments. I also have no desire to argue and fight with people because I'm afraid and the spirit of fear is in my life. These are things that the Lord has had to rework and open my eyes to in my own life. And Jesus was being confronted by these church Karens known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were demanding that he show them a sign. But he is like, even if I showed you the sign, you wouldn't see it because your heart is too hard. Let me show you some biblical evidence for what I just said about arguing in a hard heart. Psalms 95, verse 8 through 10, the psalmist says this. The Lord says, don't harden your hearts as Israel did at Meribah and as they did at Massa in the wilderness. For there your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw everything that I did for them. For 40 years I was angry with them and said, they are my people whose hearts have turned away from me, i.e., a hard heart of unbelief. What does he say next? They refused to do what I told them. Refused. That's a hard heart. Well, what happened in, at Meribah and Massa? Well, you can find the story. I think it's in Exodus 15 and, and Exodus 17 for sure. Exodus 17, they've come to Meribah. And the children of Israel are cranky. More than cranky, they're a little cynical and they're fed up. And they come to Moses and they start complaining and criticizing and, and just upset. And they came to test God and needed something from God. They were thirsty and they didn't think they had any water. And because they didn't have any water and their circumstances wasn't as comfortable as they wanted, they assumed God had left them and wasn't real and wasn't about that life no more. And they were critical of it and skeptical of it. And they came to Moses demanding demanding that the Lord do something for them. Make water appear. We need water. We demand water or we're not going to believe in God. And in in verse 7 of Exodus 17, it ends with this phrase, is the Lord not among us? Prove it, God. Prove it, God. Even if he did, and he does, they still didn't see it or change their attitude because their hearts were already hard. Read Hebrews chapter four. It talks about their hard heart of unbelief. Unbelieving heart is a hard heart. 
The Pharisees wouldn't see the miracles that Jesus was doing and what he did in front of them because their heart was already hard. You, you know, I started digging. I thought it was really interesting that here was a rock. They wanted water. And what did Jesus or what did Moses end up doing? God tells Moses, Moses, take your staff, your stick, hit the rock. And Moses hit the rock. And what came from the walk, rock? Water. Water started pouring from the rock and they were able to drink and have refreshments and they, they were able to see this need being met. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing full of pictures and signs that were pointing to something. But it was interesting. I started looking up the word Meribah and Massa and it's so, so interesting. Did you know? Uh, I hope I don't get these mixed up because they're not in my notes. I'm just remembering this. Meribah means argument. Massa means testing. They came testing God, prove it God, and their heart continued to grow hard. How did it grow hard? Because they just kept arguing instead of aligning with what God has already done. They were missing the sign. The Pharisees arguing, testing God. Why? Their heart was hard with unbelief. They were missing the signs anyways. Pastor, how do you know that they were missing the signs? Because Jesus is the sign. It all was pointing to him. He's the sign. Jesus is the living water that they drank from in the Old Testament. In, in, Gen in Exodus 17, he is represented by the rock. Jesus is known as the rock of ages. They missed the sign. They already knew that. They remembered that story. They were missing it in front of them. Jesus not only was the rock of ages, but Jesus was struck down on two sticks in the form of a cross. He was the one who poured out his life for them. He's the one who was present and living among them. They were were missing the signs and Jesus was right in front of them because their hearts were hard with unbelief. Jesus is the sign, friends. Jesus is the sign. And Jesus says to them, you want me to do a miracle? You want me to do this? I'm not doing any miracles for you. I'm not trying to, to win your favor, to change your mind, to argue with you. You are blind and you have no desire to see. Your heart is hard. He says, but I will give you one sign. He says, I'm going to give you the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, this wasn't the first time they came to him. One of the first times we have recorded of them coming to him in Matthew's gospel is in Matthew chapter 12. Listen to how they came to test and argue with Jesus in Matthew 12 and listen to Jesus' response. Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 39, it says, One day, some teachers of religious law and the Pharisees came to Jesus, and this time, they just asked and said. They didn't demand. They just asked and said. Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign, you know, to, to prove your authority. And Jesus replied, similar deja vu of chapter 16. Look at what he says to them. Only an evil and adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. <sighs> Someone who has given their affections to someone they are not in covenant relationship with. You adulterous generation. I will give you the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, so 
will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. I thought it was interesting that it phrased it at the preaching of Jonah. What do you think Jonah did? Pause. Let me catch you up. You can read about it in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, but Jonah's story goes something like this. God came to Jonah. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. These people are wicked and awful, and they have bad, 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 bad news. I need you to go tell them about me that they would repent and have their life saved because judgment is coming. Jonah's like, uh-uh, I ain't going to see them people. Them people are wicked and crazy, and they're going to kill me, and I have no desire to do that. I'm going the other way. He sets in the ship on sail for Tarshish. He, he gets on a boat as a stowaway, and all of a sudden, this huge storm shows up. Violently, they're throwing everything they're praying to any God they can think of to try to save their life. And Jonah's like, um, hey guys, um, if you throw me overboard, the storm will stop. They're like, deal. They grabbed him, threw him overboard. The storm stops. Their life was saved. Jonah gets eaten by a whale. In the belly of the whale for how many days? And how many nights? Three nights. Get spit up on dry land. Where do you think he landed? Huh, you're right. Nineveh. He goes to the people of Nineveh and says, hey guys, let me tell you my story. I rebelled and I ran from God. I didn't do it his way. It didn't work out so well for me. I ended up in a fish for three days, three nights, and pop, here I am. Smell, it smells like whale. And they were like, oh my gosh. They repented, they turned to God, and they gave their life to him. The sign God used of Jonah's life was, was a form of death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus says, that's the sign I'm going to give you. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And three days later, I'm coming back. Here's your sign. You can believe or not believe, but you're not going to recognize the sign because you're still blind and full of unbelief. That's the sign I'm giving you. Friends, don't refuse to listen to God. Hear him beckoning you. At the end of the day, what you do with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus matters a great deal. The sign Jesus has given you may not be to heal grandma, but it's that he has already given himself as a death, burial, and resurrection. Will you believe in his resurrection? The sign may not be the job that you want and the prayer that you prayed being answered, but he's already given you the greatest sign of all. He gave you his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension and enthronement in heaven. And what you do with the reality of who Jesus is matters. Jesus is the sign you've been waiting for. But church people, I know they can stink sometimes, but Jesus is the sign you are looking for. He's the one. He came to fulfill all things, to be all things, to point. When it comes to Jesus and his resurrection, friends, we can either develop a heart of unbelief or we can begin to build our life on the rock of our allegiance to him as king. Those are our options. 
a heart that believes in him or a heart of unbelief about him? What you do with the question, who do you say Jesus is? Most important question you settle in your life. Regardless of the pain, regardless of the circumstances, what you do with who is Jesus matters the most. And this is what Peter did. While all of the Pharisees and the church Karens and the Sadducees were missing it and blind and living in unbelief, Peter makes a different statement and proclamation. He says, well, they say all these things. This is kind of what culture is saying. You're like Jesus. You're kind of like this, and you're a good teacher. You're a guru. You've got some good wisdom. I kind of like it. It's good self-help. makes me feel better about myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't care about the culture. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Well, you are Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. (laughs) Jesus, you're the son of God. And Peter Jesus responds, that's right. And on that, I will build my church. On that, what? On Peter? Is Peter the rock that was the foundation of the church? No. He's a great guy, great person to learn from. I love, way to go, Peter. You're the dude. I learned a lot from you. But Jesus isn't building the church on Peter. Jesus is building his church on what Peter demonstrated. What did Peter demonstrate? A willful, loyal commitment to allegiance to Jesus. It was in that moment Peter pledged his loyalty to Jesus as king and nothing else. And upon that profession of faith, upon that decision to embody a belief and move in your allegiance to Jesus, that is what Jesus says, I'm going to build an entire group of people, a gathered people around this idea that they're giving their lives and allegiance to me. They are going to be known as the gathered people of God whose loyal love and affection are for none other but Jesus himself. And they're going to be my bride. They're not going to give their affections to the world. They're going to give their affections to me. They're not going to give their affections to themselves and how life feels and how to make their life better. No, no. They're going to give their allegiance to Jesus. Come hell or high water, Jesus is our guy. He's our ride or die for life. There's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved but the name of Jesus. Peter was making this pledge of allegiance and belief. Lest you forget the meaning of it. How many times must we repeat it and say it as part of our gospel liturgy and our proclamation? And I don't know how many more times I can say it, but I'm not going to stop saying it. Faith is your allegiance. Allegiance is a loyal obedience as an embodied belief. What is unbelief? An embodied belief in the wrong thing. That I would rather argue and control people than to align and give my allegiance to a person. I would rather take some scriptures that make me feel good and warms and fuzzies and I can use it like a magic rabbit foot to get my prayers answered or not and recognize it's about my life looking like what I've confessed my life to look like. It's about taking this belief in who Jesus, embodying it in a loyal commitment to follow after 
him. If you keep reading in Matthew chapter 16, we, we stopped and there's a little bit you could go back and read this week, but listen to these words of how Jesus and Matthew end this chapter. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, um, if anyone wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. That's what you do with your time, what you do with your talents, what you do with your treasure, what you do with your schedule, your priorities, your opinions, your, your political persuasion, all of it. You give it up. What your idea of family is and how family should run, give it up. If anyone wants to follow me, must give up their own way. Take up their cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're, you're going to lose it. It's like trying to grip sand. It's just going to get squeezed out. Anyone who tries to hold on to their life is going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And, and what do you benefit if you gain like the whole world, but you lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Friends, you can either take up your cross now. You can either deny your life now. Or you can hold on to your life now and deal with the consequences later. You can lose your life now and find it. Or you can hold on to your life and lose it. There aren't two other, that's it, two, A or B, red pill, blue pill. You got two choices. Give your life now or lose it later. What is it profit? Like, what, what is your soul really worth? Like, what, it, it, what is a profit if you have financial comfort and security but no soul? What, what does it help if you're highly engaged in local scene and politics but you bicker and fight and lose your soul because it turns hard? What does it matter and profit you if your kids are well-rounded, amazing athletes, the center of your world, but they have lost their own soul? What does it matter? What does it help? What does it profit you if you have all the hidden secret conspiracies of our world figured out and you get to say, I told you so one day, but you lose your soul? What does it help you if you are well acquainted with Netflix and the, all the newest Netflix specials and the TikTok trends and sports statistics, but you have no soul? What does it profit you? What's it really worth? Is the bitterness you're holding on to really worth forfeiting your soul in eternity? Is the security of finances and how you govern your life and what you find is your priorities and what you believe about your pain and your past and the problems of church, is it worth forfeiting your soul? Because you will either lose it now and have life later or you will hold on to it now and lose it later.
Who is Jesus to you? That's the question of embodied belief or embodied unbelief. I love what happened to Peter. He made this commitment and this allegiance and he got a new name. You were known as Simon, but now I'm calling you Peter. And on the rock of your allegiance to me, I'm gonna build an entire church on people just like that. And I'm gonna give them a new name too. That's why Peter would later write in in 1 Peter 2 and he'd say, you you are a, a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy name. He gives you a new name. Chosen, royal, holy. Chosen, royal, and holy. That's your identity. And this is what we do in baptism. I love it. Water baptism is a public announcement of your embodied faith and allegiance to Jesus. It's an, it's an, it's an, an embodied decision to say my allegiances lie with Jesus and no one else. <laughs> Baptism is a funeral of the 1.0 you dying and being buried. You're giving your life to Christ. Galatians says that uh, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It's a, it's a crucifixion. It's a burial of your old way, your, your marked way for the world, and a resurrected new life, new life in Christ, raised 2.0 to be a new person, to be like Christ, to follow him. Your allegiances switch. It's, baptism is the public ceremony celebrating your pledge of loyal, loving allegiance to Jesus as king. That's what we do in baptism. Baptism marks you as somebody sealed and loved by God. Oh, and that matters. It matters because you need to know the times that you're living in. It matters because I need to know the seasons and the times that we're living in. This, This word marked in the Greek is the word sharagma, C-H-A-R-A-G-M-A. And it means this. It means to seal with ownership and lordship. Water baptism is the seal that marks you. Why is that important? Because Jesus is coming. And in the book of Revelation, we read that it's important what you're marked with. There are those who are either marked by the Lord or carry the mark of the beast. Friends, the mark of the beast is not a chip. It's not a a tattoo. It's not some cryptocurrency, online banking conspiracy. it's, It's none of those things. The mark of the beast is a definition of where's your allegiance. You either are living with an allegiance to the systems of our world or you are living with an allegiance to Jesus. You are marked. The mark is your embodied belief. 
you're either marked in the ways of Jesus or you're marked by the ways of the world. It's not external posing. It's not pretending. It's not I prayed a prayer one time, but I haven't changed how I've lived. No, it's an embodied belief of my life in Jesus, my direction to him, the loyalty of my life deep down into the crevices of who I am. It's all, I am team Jesus, not team anything else. It means to be marked with ownership and lordship. It represents our beliefs, our right, and it represents our conduct as a result of those beliefs. Friends, you're marked already. I'm marked already. And it's not a matter whether you had a vaccine or you didn't have a vaccine. Come on, somebody. Get out of here. Never mind. Have you given your life now? Or are you going to give it later? There's a huge difference between having allegiance to Jesus and having an affinity for Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? See, a character from the scripture that you have some like and affinity for, I really like what he has to say and it's good and I'm a church guy but he doesn't have your allegiance? Your life now or your life later? What is a profit? Would you stand with me as we come to a moment of just response? And I recognize that I've skipped into some bonus time today. Not that the clock is our controller. I also fully recognize the weight, the heaviness in a good way that many of my words today have brought into this place and into our hearts. And I think they demand a response from us today. Would you just close your eyes for a second? take a couple deep breaths and be in the presence of God for a minute. Just simply ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today and what should my next step be? Just ask the Holy Spirit that question. Jesus, we thank you for your gospel, the good news, that you are the fulfillment of all things, that you are the risen Lord, that you came, died, were buried, rose again, ascended, and enthroned. Jesus, it's our allegiance to that truth that we embody, to you as a person who is a personal God and interactive with us, Jesus, that's that's what we want to do. Lord, today, some in this room might be ready to take a next step and be water baptized. God, I pray that your spirit would give them the courage to take that step. Lord, I pray that there would be many in this room, myself included, who just have some examining of our hearts and our priorities and where we've been adulterous, we would repent. Where we've given our affections to other things more than you, Lord, we would repent. And Lord, we would change directions keeping our allegiance to you. And Lord, I pray that 
there would probably be many in this room that know someone far away from God who's maybe got a hard heart. Lord, would you just remind us of who that is and lead us to pray daily this prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 that their eyes of their heart would be open, God, so they can see you and your goodness and your love in their lives. Lord, we want to be your people, called by you, walking with you, giving you our full allegiance. So that I pray today blessing over my friends and family. I pray that you would bless them and keep them. Lord, that you would make your face shine on them, be gracious to them. You'd lift your countenance towards them and give them your peace. Pray that everywhere we go this week, we would be reminded that we are radically loved by you and we give you a radical love of loyal allegiance in return. In Jesus' name. And all the people of God said, amen. Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If you're if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see it in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.